Well, good morning, IEC. It's good to see everyone. I'm Pastor Steve Winstead, and uh, this morning I'm excited. We're starting a new series. We just finished up last week a series in the book of Ruth, a short, fun, uh, amazing story in the Old Testament that points us forward to Jesus Christ. Well, today we're starting a new book. It's also only four chapters long, but we'll move through it a little bit slower as it's a different type of genre. We had been in a narrative story. Now we're in what's known as a Pauline epistle, one of the letters that Paul wrote, and we're going to be for the next few weeks, months, in the book of Philippians. Philippians is a, a great little book. It's only 104 verses long. So it's not a long book. In fact, if you look in your Bible, it's probably about two and a half pages long. Philippians is also one of the most quoted books in this Bible. When we, when we memorize Scripture, Philippians is one of the most memorized books in your Bible. People love to pick passages out of uh, Philippians. In fact, you can sort of get a summary of the book through some of the key verses. In chapter 1, in Philippians 1.21, it says, For to me to live is Christ, to die is gain. That Christ, He is above us. He's our life. He's who we live for. In chapter 2, verse 5, it says, Have the mind among yourselves, which is that of Christ Jesus, that our mind. We're to have the mind and the heart attitude of Jesus Christ. In chapter 3, in verse 12, it says, Not that I've already obtained this, or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Jesus has made me His own. That I press on for the prize, living for His glory. And then in chapter 4, one of the most known verses, and also one of the most misquoted verses in your Bible, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Him who gives me strength. I say that's often misquoted, especially uh, in the country I come from, the United States. You see, we, we have a, a belief in our culture. We even tell this to our children. You can be and do anything you want to do. You can be anything you want to be. It sounds good, but it's biblically not true. God hasn't made us to do anything we want to do. He hasn't made us to be anything that He uh, that we want to be. No, God has created us. He's the one who numbers our days. He's the one who places where he, where he places and gives us the gifts He gives us to be used for His glory. You see, no matter how much I desire to be a great football player, that's not going to happen. You see, we can't do anything we want to do. No, that verse is often taken out of context to be used for whatever I'm going to do, Jesus is going to give me the strength to do it. No, Paul's in prison in this book. And in prison, Paul is saying in chapter 4, I've learned the secret of being content, whether well-fed or hungry, whether in plenty or in want. And the secret of that is I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So church, let me tell you, where Jesus places you, He gives you the strength to do what He has called you to do. But it's not that I can do whatever I want and Christ is going to come bless it, which is often how this verse is used and misquoted. Well, today uh, we're going to look at the first two verses of Philippians. Throughout the book of Ruth, I felt like every week I was saying, well, we're going to 
read a little bit longer passage. Well, today we're only reading two verses. So if you would please stand. We're going to be reading Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. It reads, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of God for the people of God and all God's people said, praise be to God. You may be seated. Lord, your word says that the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. Lord, unless you speak, nothing of significance will be spoken. So Holy Spirit, speak today. We pray this in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen. Well, today's message is going to be a little more informational than some others. Because to understand the book of Philippians, and really to understand any book, you need to have a grasp of the context. Oftentimes, if we don't understand the context, we end up misunderstanding what God is speaking to His people then and to His people today through His Holy Word. So this book starts, and the very first word of the, verse is, of the book is Paul. Now, many of us have heard of Paul. Paul's the author of 13 letters in our New Testament. And Paul's an amazing, intriguing figure. You see, Paul was the religious superstar of Judaism. He was the young guy who was going to be the next amazing Jewish rabbi. He had been trained by a man named Gamaliel, who was the best teacher of the day. And Paul was rising quickly. In fact, Paul was so well-recognized and so well-respected that at the stoning, the martyrdom of the very first Christian to die for their faith in Jesus Christ, Stephen, they come and place their cloaks at Paul's feet. Paul representing the Jewish leadership and giving approval. That's the type of clout Paul had. And if you lived in uh, the ancient world in Judaism and you had a child, there was no higher honor, there was no greater achievement than for your child to become a rabbi. If your child could be a religious leader and rabbi, as a parent, you were thinking your child was the most successful person ever. And that's where Paul was. Unlike the disciples, who had very little qualifications, Paul, according to Judaism of his day, he had all the qualifications you could ever want. In fact, Paul was so zealous for Judaism of his day that he was going to go to Damascus to persecute Christians. And on his way there, you, many of you remember the story, God literally knocks Paul down, blinds him, because that was a spiritual condition. And here's the thing, church. You can be religious. You can know a lot of Bible. You can attend church a lot and go through a lot of practices, but you can still be blind to the spiritual truths. Amen. And here we see that Paul, though he knew a lot, though he had a lot, he was blind. Amen. And Jesus comes and blinds him and then opens his eyes through one of his humble servants, Ananias. And this Paul, his life does a 180. 
And I can imagine what Paul's friends thought. All the people that knew Paul. Paul was known in Judaism. He had a reputation. And all of a sudden, he's now a Christian. Some of you, that's your story. You were known for something. You thought, I, ne- I don't want to join the Christians. I don't want to be a Christian. In fact, you may have made fun of Christians and wanted nothing to do with Christians, but then Jesus came and your life did a 180. And you've never been the same since. Well, that's the story of the Apostle Paul. And in the letter of Philippians, we find him writing this letter some 10 to 15 years after the church started, and he's in prison. In the book of Acts, the last two verses give us where Paul is. So hear these words. He says, He, meaning Paul, lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Here's what's going on. Paul reaches Rome. He's put in prison, but it's a house arrest style prison. And Paul, anybody that comes to visit him, he boldly proclaims the gospel of Jesus Christ. I I love hearing that. Brothers and sisters, we are to be the people who herald the gospel to the world. That's what God has has called us to do. And if you've been in the church any length of time, you probably have seen a lot of different strategies for sharing faith. Good strategies. How do you share your faith? How do you share it with these people or this people in this situation? All those are great. But I believe the most important thing when it comes to evangelism, when it comes to sharing the gospel, is that a person is so in love with Jesus and they are so close to Jesus that they can't help but talk about what Jesus has done in their life. They can't help but talk about how glorious and wonderful Jesus is. They can't help but lift up His grace. And that's who Paul is. His life was completely transformed by the grace of Jesus Christ, and he could not help but talk about it. Now, in his house arrest prison, he would have had a Roman guard chained to him all the time. And it said Paul had to take care of his own expenses. So get this, if you're in prison and your occupation is a tent maker, well, you can't work. So how do you take care of your expenses? Hence the church in Philippi. The church in Philippi, this little church that didn't have much money, they send money to take care of Paul. This was a very broad-minded church. We're going to see it later on. It's a beautiful church. In fact, it's probably the best church that Paul planted. And they write Paul a thank you letter. I mean, Paul writes them a thank you letter in Philippians. When they sent Paul money, guess who delivered it? their lead pastor, Epaphroditus. He traveled what would have been a few months to bring Paul a financial gift and check up on Paul. And Paul writes them a thank you letter and says, take this back to the Philippians. I want them to know that I love them and to thank them and how much joy I have when I think of the church in Philippi. This is a letter of joy. There's a lot of joy in this letter. It's what's known as one of the prison epistles along with Ephesians, uh, Colossians, and Philemon. Paul writes these three letters while he's under house arrest prison. Now, in this thank you letter, he deals with themes of joy. He deals with themes of Christ. It's a Christological pixel. Christ is mentioned over and over again. We're going to see that. But he also, most of Paul's letters, he's dealing with major corrective issues. 
Here Paul just has to, he's not dealing with major issues, but there are issues within this church. And get this, this is a great church, but it's not a perfect church. And I can tell you, in my limited time here at IEC, I can tell you, this is a great church. And what makes it great is that we herald the gospel and that the people here have been faithfully pursuing Jesus Christ. That's evident. But it doesn't mean it's a perfect church. You go look for a perfect church and you'll never find a church because there is no perfect church. No, what makes a church great is that the church sticks to the Word of God and uplifts the glory of Jesus Christ and continually points to that. One of the things I've loved about IEC is I'll talk to many of you and I'll ask you, how long have you been at IEC? And some of you will say, well, I've been here 35 years. I was raised here and I'm raising my kids here. And to me, that is a beautiful, glorious testimony. And, and I thank you that God has allowed that to be your story, that you have been able to be a part of this church for so long. Because there's others. Being an international church, there's some who come here for a year, two years, three years. God brings you here for a season, but to have a, a group of people that are deeply committed in here for the long haul makes a beautiful picture of the body of Christ loving and serving well. I can't tell you how much delight and joy I find in the Lord in this church and in what God is doing here. You see, in, in the United States, it's rare that you find anybody that's been in a church for very long. As soon as someone doesn't like something, if they don't like the music style, if they don't like somebody, they go to another church. We're, we're known for that. We have a consumer mentality, meaning I come to church for myself and whether I like it or not. And if I don't like it, I'm moving on. Brothers and sisters, there is time to move on from a church. But it's not because you don't like the style of music. It's not because you don't think the church is smooth enough or slick enough or put together enough. No, you only move on when you hear the gospel no longer being proclaimed. When you hear the word of God no longer being lifted high. The church is the herald, the good news of the gospel, and to lift up the word of God. That's what makes a church a church. And when you see a pastor start to roam from that, Lord forbid the day I ever preach anything other than the gospel, I pray the elders would remove me because I have nothing to offer in and of myself. All we can point to is Jesus Christ and the glory of His gospel. So when we come to sing here, we want to sing to God's glory. Church, when you come to sing, it's not about, oh, did I like the drums? Did I like the music? No, it's about, did I worship God? Did we sing truth to Him? That's what we want to do. Because you see, one of the beautiful things, we're a very diverse church. Did you know the church in Philippi was very diverse? They were actually very broad-minded, the church in Philippi. The church in Philippi, when they heard that the church in Jerusalem needed money, they sent money to the church in Jerusalem. Now that is radical because they are Gentiles sending money to a Jewish congregation. That would have been radical in that day and time. But you see, in Jerusalem, when you came to Jesus, you lost it all. You lost everything because you couldn't get a job. You couldn't do anything. So the Christians coming to Christ in Jerusalem in that church, they were literally losing their jobs and their livelihood. And the church in Philippi said, we're going to take care of our brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. Because it's not about we're Gentiles and they're Jews. It's about we're one in the blood of Jesus.
And that's what's beautiful about this church. I love that this church has many different nations in it. We have different cultures. That's a beautiful, glorious thing. I realize that's what eternity is going to look like, but it doesn't mean we're perfect or got it all figured out. And at times, in order to have that, we lay aside our preferences. But let me tell you, the gospel's no preference. The gospel's the truth. Never, ever lay aside the gospel. Hold tightly to that. And here, Paul is writing to this church a thank you. And it says, Paul, and then it says, and Timothy. I love Paul, how he always opens. It's never just Paul. It's Paul and Silas. Paul and Timothy. Paul's got Epaphroditus with him. Paul always has somebody with him. Paul is always modeling biblical discipleship. Wherever he goes, he invests in other people. You see, discipleship is Jesus' strategy for reaching the world. It starts with evangelism. Someone doesn't know Jesus and they come to know Him. And then helping that person grow in maturity to the point that they can help another person grow in maturity. That's what discipleship is. Those of you who have children, when your children are little, you've got to do everything for them. But as they grow, they begin to feed themselves, dress themselves, clean themselves. And you delight in it. Because that's what's supposed to happen. And one day, they will leave your home, Lord willing, and one day, they'll marry, Lord willing, and they'll reproduce and have children of their own. In the Christian life, that's what we want. As we invest in others, we want to help them reach a point that they are spiritually mature enough to help others come to Christ and grow maturity. One of the greatest joys in the Christian life is to see a disciple, somebody that you've invested in, to see them reproducing, leading people to the Lord, growing those in their faith. Church, that's, our, that's our, what we're called to. That's the ministry and the work you get the delight and joy of going and doing. That's what God has called you to do. And it's a beautiful thing. And I think so often the reason that the church grows stale or stagnant is because we're not living out by the power of the gospel what God has called us to in making disciples. Well, Paul was always making disciples. And he has Timothy with him. And let me tell you, Paul and Timothy are as different as they can be. And I love it because oftentimes those that we disciple and we invest in are very different from us. Timothy grew up being called a derogatory name. They would have called him a mamzer. Now, that doesn't mean much to us. But in that day and time, that was quite the social stigma. That had a, a sting, a bite to it. And that's what they would call Timothy. Why? Because his mother was Jewish and his father was Greek. So when Timothy was eight days old and they would have wanted to take him to the synagogue to be circumcised by the rabbi there, the rabbi would have said, no, he's a mamzer. His dad's a Greek. Not going to do it. When Timothy, as a boy growing up, would have said, I want to go into the synagogue and hear the word of God taught, they'd say, you can't come in here, Timothy. That's why Paul says in 2 Timothy, you learned your faith from your grandmother and your mother because they wouldn't let Timothy come in the synagogue. So when Timothy sees this guy named Paul coming through and Paul sees this guy named Timothy with a hunger for the truth of God, Paul grabs him up and takes him with him. This guy is very different than Paul. This guy who struggles with confidence, who struggles with uh, uh, boldness. 
Things that Paul didn't struggle with, Timothy struggles with, and Paul builds him up and hands him his most challenging, difficult church, the church in Ephesus. I love this picture of discipleship. Paul and Timothy, it's beautiful. I've heard it said in discipleship that you look for people who are fat. Now, not use it the way you think I would. It's an acronym. People who are faithful, available, and teachable. And that's what Paul found in Timothy. He was a faithful man who was available to travel with Paul, and he was teachable. But let me tell you, if you try to disciple somebody who's not available, they're not faithful, or they're not teachable, you're not going to get very far. No, Timothy is that type of man. And it says here, they are servants of Christ Jesus. That word servant gets used a lot uh, of different ways in Scripture. Sometimes, and it gets confusing because of our cultural context versus biblical cultural context. Sometimes it'll use the word slave. Sometimes it'll use the word servant. And they mean different things than we often mean in our day and time. The word here is doulos, meaning bondservant. And let me tell you what a bondservant is. You see... In the Old Testament, if you were destitute, you could sell yourself to a master. They would sometimes refer to that as servanthood. Sometimes they would refer to that as slavery. But what it was is you would go and be an employee of that master for seven years, working for them, serving for them to pay off your debt. But when seven years was over, it never went longer than seven years, you were set free. We, we can see it. Look back. I'll show you on the screen. In Exodus chapter 21, it says, But if a slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, my children, I will not go free. So what's happening here is this servant has reached seven years. And they are free to go. But here's what the servant says. I will not go free. Then his master shall take him to God. And he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. Here's what it is. Somebody is serving their master, and they're about to be set free from their master. But they look and they say, I would rather live life with my master forever than leave him. He's so good to me. So they would bring you before God, meaning uh, in that context, bring you before the elders of the city who represented God, and they would say, have you been tricked into this? Is he forcing you to do this? And the servant would say, no. My master's that good. I'll serve my master for the rest of my life. Hardship, difficulty, I'm going to serve him. And they would take his ear and put it on the door of the master's and put a nail through it. He's with him for life. And Paul, who most certainly had the Old Testament memorized, when he uses the word Paul in Timothy and says, doulos, bondservant, he knows what he's saying. He's saying, hey, we could have walked away, but we freely serve the Master. And let me tell you, the type of freedom that we often talk about in various cultures, especially the culture I'm from, doesn't exist. Everybody has something as their master. You're either enslaved to sin, the thoughts of man, what people think of you. If there's things that you can't quit doing, 
Things that you can't quit thinking about. Things you can't quit saying. You know, sometimes people say, well, I, I just talk about people a little bit. It's my personality. No. We're all born sinners, so it may be there, but it's sin and you need to repent of it. You see, we're all serving some master. The question is, who is your master? Is your master this world and the brokenness and the fallenness of this world and the opinions of man, or is your master Jesus Christ? And you say, I'm going to live for Him, I'm going to serve for Him, and it doesn't matter what man thinks of me, it matters what the Lord thinks of me, and if I'm faithful to Him. That's how Paul lived. They were bondservants of Christ Jesus, and that's a beautiful thing. And he says, we're bondservants of Christ Jesus, and here's who he's writing to, to the saints. Now, many of us hear the word saint. We don't use it a lot in church. Why? Because we think a saint is a special spiritual superstar. St. Paul, St. Peter, St. John. They're the spiritual elite. Well, that's not the reality of how Scripture uses the word saint. Saint, the word hagios, means set apart. It means holy. Church, do, do you long for holiness? Christ calls us to be a holy people. We should long for holiness. And that's what he's writing to, to the saints. So when I speak to you who've trusted in Christ and are redeemed, I can call you a saint with great confidence. Because that's how God sees you as holy, because of his son Jesus. I love the language scripture uses. I remember when I was in seminary in the 1990s, I had a professor that said, be careful of using overly churchy words in the church because people won't understand and it'll turn people off. And as I've grown, I've seen that that does to be grieved because as a Christian, we are set apart. We are different. We even speak different. Now, when we talk about the words of Scripture, we need to explain them. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, we're glad you're here. We would want you nowhere else. But what I hope you see to the non-Christian is a community of people who trust in Jesus, who are different, who have been transformed, who love one another sacrificially, who lay down their own rights and interests for one another. And I believe as we do that, the Lord will bring those who don't know Him in to the family. So this word saint is a beautiful word. It's a glorious word, and that's the reality. That's who God sees you as. Why? Because you're in His Son and you're holy. So now we go live. We seek to live according to that high calling. We're called saints. All the words in Scripture used of, of Christians are high callings. Christian means little Christ. We want to live in a manner worthy of the calling that Jesus has placed upon us. Now it says there are saints of Christ Jesus. In this book, Christ is used more than 50 times. And in most of Paul's books, in many of the prison epistles, he's writing to a heresy called Gnosticism. And Gnosticism taught this. It taught that Jesus is not fully God, not fully man, he's an angel. Now, if you struggle with the concept of Jesus being fully God and fully man, I feel you. That's a difficult concept. But just because it's difficult doesn't mean it's not true. That's what Scripture teaches. Jesus is fully God, fully man. Otherwise, He would have been an insufficient sacrifice. And when I see Paul get angry, he never gets angry at false religion. He doesn't like false religion. 
but he doesn't get angry at it. What makes Paul angry is something called the gospel of Jesus Christ that is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, uh, there's many false gospels spreading. Probably the most prevalent comes out of uh, the United States where anybody can say, hey, I'm going to be a pastor and go and start their own church anyway. They don't have to have anybody above them affirming or looking at qualifications. The belief that if you follow Jesus, he will give you wealth, health, and happiness. Now, Jesus may bless you with some of those things, but it's not a direct equation. It's not if I follow Jesus, he's going to give me that. No, Jesus says, follow me, and you're going to die. The Christian life is about death, dying to yourself to live for his glory. You're going to have persecution. You're going to have suffering. And when we teach the Christian life's all about me, Christian life's about my comfort, Christian life's about my health and my wealth. No, it's about God's glory. So when Paul sees a false gospel spreading, it's problematic. And when we see false gospel spreading around our globe, we should grieve it. And we should graciously and lovingly point people to the truth of who Jesus is. Because Jesus is glorious. He's wonderful. He's better than anything you can find in this world. And in this book, he talks about joy. And Jesus gives his people joy. Joy is not based on your circumstances. If your contentment in life is based on your circumstances, you're never going to be very content. Or you're always going to be pursuing building a kingdom in this world that you'll never be able to build. No. Our joy is based on the reality that for the Christian, they are secure in Christ, that their home is not here, that their home's in the world to come. And here, we are just sojourners here for a little while, and that's how Paul lived. And he's writing to the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. Now, when he says Philippi, again, we should pause and ask, what's unique about this place? Philippi was started by a man named Philip of Macedon. Philip of Macedon went there because there was gold and silver. And the city became a thriving city, so thriving that his son named Alexander the Great took all the wealth of Philippi and ruled the world. Later, when the Romans took over, they turned it into a Roman colony, which a Roman colony, that meant that it had a military base there, and that meant that if you lived there, you were a Roman citizen who did not have to pay taxes. So it's a very, very unique place, this city of Philippi. And Paul found this church on his second missionary journey, and it's a very unique finding of a church. Paul, on his second missionary journey, is going and visiting all the churches from his first missionary journey. And as he travels around, the Holy Spirit tells him not to go where he wants to go. So Paul does what a lot of us do when we're confused in ministry. He takes a nap. Never a bad idea when you're confused about what the Lord's leading you to do, just take a nap. Because we can rest in the Lord, okay? We don't have to figure it all out. Paul's like, I don't know what to do. God's got it. I'm taking a nap. And in that nap, he has a vision of a man from Macedon saying, come over here. And Paul goes to uh, the Macedonian city of Philippi. But Paul had a church planning strategy that was pretty unique. What he would do is he would go to the synagogue where the Jewish people were and he would preach the gospel and then a riot would break out. Paul would get beat up. They would throw him in prison and when he got out of prison, he would gather those who believed and that's the church. 
That was Paul's church planning strategy. Well, when he came to Philippi, there's a problem. There's no synagogue. There's not 10 Jewish men living there. So what Paul did was what the Jewish people did whenever the temple was destroyed. When the temple was destroyed, the Jewish people would go down to the river and wail and mourn. So Paul goes down to the river. And there he finds this woman from Asia named Lydia, who's a very successful woman leading women in prayer. And they hear the gospel. They're God-fearers. And when they hear the gospel, they, uh, their eyes are opened up to the reality of Jesus Christ and they convert. Then in Philippi, there's this girl who's demon-possessed. And she's making her masters a lot of money because this demon is a special demon. This demon foretells the future. And she begins to track Paul down, calling out Paul. And Paul turns and in the power of Jesus casts out the demon. Well, people don't like that, so it gets a little chaotic. And Paul ends up in prison. Well, in prison, God wants him out of prison. An earthquake happens and the prison falls in. Now, most people in that situation, after an earthquake and the prison's falling in, you would leave. But Paul doesn't. He's a missionary. Paul sees the prison guard. And if Paul leaves and escapes, the prison guard will be killed. Because that's how they did it. If you were a prison guard and a, a prisoner escaped on your watch, they killed you. So Paul stays and shares the gospel with the prison guard. So this church in Philippi starts with an Asian woman named Lydia, who wasn't from that area, a former demon-possessed girl, and a prison guard. And this will be Paul's best church. It'll be the church that Paul sings praises of. We'll see Paul in the book of, of Romans, chapter 15. He'll praise the church in Philippi as an example. In 2 Corinthians, chapter 8, he'll praise the uh, church in Philippi as an example of a faithful church. He'll praise this church over and over again. It's a unique, beautiful church. That was almost started by accident. But isn't that how our God works? Sometimes when we're trying to do things our own way, God says, I've got a different way. And if we trust God, He is going to accomplish His purposes. Know this, brothers and sisters. God will accomplish His ultimate purpose with or without you. But He invites us in to the great joy of being a part of the work He's doing. That's what we're designed to live for. That's why we're here. Why do when we baptize somebody, do we not just hold them under the water and send them on to glory? We know glory's far better than here. Why don't we just send people there? Because God's got work for us here. God has strategically placed you in the places you work, in the neighborhood you live in, in the home you're in, to point glory back to Him. To be His hands, His voice, His feet right there. Oftentimes we look and we think, I could really share the gospel if I went and didn't know. Be faithful right where you are until God moves you. And Paul ends up in Philippi and he's faithful there. And we see this amazing, great church start there in Philippi. And he says that he's writing with the over to the church with overseers and deacons. That's a beautiful phrase. God designed the church to have overseers and deacons. The Greek word for overseer can be translated pastor or elder. They're all equivalent words. One of the beautiful things about IC is we have elders. Now, having elders in a church doesn't make a church faithful. 
You can have a church that doesn't follow a biblical structure but proclaims the gospel and God will still use it. And you can have a church that follows the biblical structure perfectly, but because you have people fighting and not getting along and disunity, you can have problems. No. Elders are to lead, feed, and protect. I love that this is an elder-led church. I love that my voice will never be able to get too powerful. I don't want that. If there's a problem, elders can correct me. That's what we need. You never want to be in a place where it is too man-centered. You want to be in a place where it's always centered on God Almighty and His glory. Centered on Jesus Christ. And here they have elders and they have deacons. Deacons are those who serve. They're lead servants. They free the elders up to do the leading, feeding, protecting, and the deacons take care of the task of the church. It's a beautiful design that God has made. God has organized it that way. In fact, the very first deacon group that we see had the first martyr, a man named Stephen. He was a deacon in the church. And he was the one that was killed with Paul standing there giving approval. And now Paul is writing to the elders and deacons in the church in Philippi. And it's, a, it's a beautiful picture here. Now, verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a glorious, beautiful sentence. It should bring great delight and comfort to the soul of a Christian. Grace. Grace is the most beautiful word. I, I love grace because when I see my sin, I know there's no work, no effort, no religious practices I could ever do to do away my sin. When you see how holy God is, and how wretched your falling nature is, it should terrify you. You see, most false religions on earth, people live in great fear. Am I good enough? You see, every religion on earth has this in common. They're based on works. And that's what makes them a false religion, is when a religion's based on works, because you can't work hard enough. You can't be good enough. You can't scrub yourself up enough to get rid of that sin. You have no hope in of yourself. It's not that you do 95% of it and Jesus does the last 5% of it. It's that you can do 0% of it. You have no hope. You need a Savior. And Jesus comes. He pays the full price. He takes all your sin upon Him. It says in uh, 2 Corinthians that He became sin. Now, I don't understand that. But somehow on the cross, Jesus became sin, took the wrath of God. You and I, we deserve the wrath of God. Jesus took it. But here's the glorious news. He gives it to us freely. That's grace. We deserve eternal separation from God. That's what our sin has earned us. Yet grace is glorious. Jesus gives us eternity with Him. He forgives us our sin. God sees us as in Christ. We are in Christ. That's how He views us, and it's beautiful and it's glorious. And this sentence here, grace to you. It's grace through Christ that brings us peace with God the Father. Let me ask you, do you live in peace? Is your soul often troubled? Do the burdens of this world and the burdens of this life wear you down? 
It's not up to you to be this world's savior. This world already has a savior. His name is Jesus Christ. All you can do is point to the savior. Be faithful where God has put you and faithfully point to him and find your delight and your peace in his grace. Find your joy in his grace in the good news of Christ. So as we journey through this book of Philippians, this book about joy, this book that it's a great church, but it also has a problem. Get this, we're going to get to the problem later. Here's the problem. There's disunity. There's a, can, you, can you believe this? There's a couple of women in the church, godly women, and they're fighting. I mean, that doesn't happen anymore. You never have Christians that don't get along, do you? Now, this church has, has problems. Every church has problems. But that's not what makes a church bad or great. What makes a church great is that they herald the gospel. So I see as you go out this week, as you go to your places of work, I pray that you would live in light of the grace that Jesus has given you, tasting the peace that comes from God the Father and heralding the gospel. And if you're here today, if you're not a believer, maybe you don't even know what that term means. Maybe a lot of what I've said sounds confusing. I'm glad you're here. I want you to know you're welcome here. And I pray that you talk to one of our elders, talk to me, talk to somebody. Because we believe Jesus is the greatest thing ever and he'll transform your life. He will redeem you and save you right where you are. He's already paid the price. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, I do thank you for your word. Your word is true and it is good and it is glorious. It's not true because I say it's true. It's true because that's how you've chosen to speak. God, you, you can speak to us in a million different ways. You could write in the sky that Jesus is Lord. But you've chosen to speak to us through your word, primarily. And then you've chosen to speak to the lost world through us, your people. So Lord, may we love, may we serve, may we encourage those who don't know you. May the Spirit of uh, your Holy Spirit living in us and Christ's work in us be so contagious and overflowing that when others see it, they desire you. Lord, may we live for nothing of ourselves. May we not live for our own name or recognition, but may we live for the glory of Jesus and may we seek to honor an audience of one, the one two, true triune God in whose name we pray. Amen.